Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Went to the hospital, and he would never come home. It was during the pandemic, so I couldn't follow him to the hospital or visit him in the hospital, so I went back home to be with my mom and to be with my sister. And when it became clear that my dad would not be coming home from the hospital, uh, suffice it to say, I was in shock. But apparently this was less shocking to my dad. He must have known it was the end of his five-year bout of cancer. Because before he left, he wrote letters to my sons. Uh, When the time was right, my mom handed me a folder with these letters. And I thought about those letters this week. This week, I've been studying and trying to get the big picture of what are called the pastoral letters of Paul. These letters are 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and what we just heard Amanda read from Titus. They're called pastoral letters because Paul is being kind of a pastor's pastor. Paul is writing to pastors. He's writing to Timothy, and he's writing to Titus. And he's giving them guidance, and he's giving them encouragement for their task. And he's giving them and encouraging them in what good pastoring looks like, and he's giving them a photo negative as well of what good pastoring looks like. And so the details of these letters are very important. The details of these letters have much to say to us today. But we are in a sermon series that is taking a high aerial view, we could say, of the Bible. So almost a year ago, uh, we started walking through the Bible one book at a time. And in some cases, like today, multiple books at a time. And when I helicopter up, and when I look at these three letters, what do I see? Well, what I see is this. Paul, the apostle, whom we've been getting to know over the past few weeks, Paul is nearing his end. Paul is facing death. We know that Paul was in prison. He was in house arrest in Rome. But he must have been released from his house arrest. But now he knows, now he knows in these letters that he is on borrowed time. And by 2 Timothy, he's back in prison. And it seems to him he's not coming And so Paul is cleaning house. Paul is passing a baton in these letters. He's trying to finish well. And so today I just want to ask one question. How do I finish well? But first let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth 
And would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer? And would your word, which goes out like the rain, like the snow, accomplish exactly what you have set it to accomplish? Would our hearts be fertile ground for your word so that you would bear fruit? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I reluctantly finished the book. And I say reluctantly because I didn't want it to end. Anybody been there? You don't want the thing to end. There's so many so-so books out there. There's so many bad books out there that when you finally read a good book, for me at least, I slow down. I put the book away. Just to ignore the inevitable. I think it's so hard to face the end of something good, isn't it? We do everything we can, I think, to avoid endings. Whether it's small case endings, lowercase e endings, like graduations or like job transitions, maybe even a vacation or a time off or a season of life itself. Or it could be big endings like life itself. We'd rather avoid endings. So, when dear friends move away, I don't know if you are familiar with this tactic, but what I like to do when friends are moving away and we have that final going away party, we say, well, we'll see you next week before you really leave. And then when you see them next week before they really leave, what do you say? You say, well, I'm certain we'll cross paths again. But what are we doing? We're delaying the inevitable. We can't face the finality. And if that's true about a friend moving away, how much more true is it when we are facing death, even our own? And so we do our best. We do our very best to ignore death. It's uncomfortable. And we have an entire society that is uh, doing everything it can to help you in this goal. Here's an example. If you have an Apple device, have you ever noticed there's no off button on those things? There's no off button on these things. And this is on purpose. <laughs> these devices are, in a way, a protest. A technological protest against endings, against limits, against death itself. And it's just one of the many artifacts in our cultural moment that is sort of helping us and even teaching us and equipping us to avoid endings. It's the air we're breathing. And in a way, this makes total sense because death is brutal. It is brutal. And biblically, it is an intruder. It is an intruder. And so it makes sense that we lessen its sting with whatever means we have, be it technology or be it distractions. But I think ignoring our end comes at a great cost. We no longer know how to die. Did you know that pastors used to describe their job as helping people die well? At first, this seems like a super depressing job description, doesn't it? But in the end, I have to accept its wisdom. I have to accept its wisdom. A good pastor helps their people die well. Moses sings in the 90th Psalm, Lord, teach us to number our days. And this is countercultural and extreme uh, because these, these days, what's trending? Longevity, right? Longevity is 
trending. Lord, teach us to extend our nets. Might be our prayer these days. And so we read books on longevity. We, we listen to podcasts on longevity. We pursue eating well, living well. But where are the books and where are the podcasts on dying well? On finishing well? Well, I actually think there are deep resources embedded within Paul's final letters to this guy. These three letters are, in a way, his last parting words. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul writes this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul dies. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to briefly, from a high level, glean from his final letters, how we might too. And I observe at least three components to finishing well. A bigger story, a bigger family, and a bigger horizon. And I want to unpack each together this morning. And so first, I think to finish well in the future of our story, we need to be a part of a bigger story. If we are the heroes of our own micro-story, we will avoid our end, won't we? But if we're part of a larger story that outsizes us, that doesn't rise and fall with us, that outlasts us, then we can actually relax at the thought that our time here is short. Imagine, I think, what it felt like to be building the Milan Cathedral in the 14th century. This cathedral began construction in 1388, and it was completed in 1965. So on the one hand, if you were a builder, within those, what, six centuries of time? Y'all know by now my math is in my strong suit. If you are a builder on this, on the one hand, you know this project doesn't need you. But on the other hand, you also know this project needs you. Why? Because the project is way bigger than their individual story. And so they can relax. And I want to suggest to you that when we see ourselves as part of a giant project that is bigger than us, then we will actually finish well. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. Just a few examples from each of his letters here this morning. From 1st, 2nd, and Titus. 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. In each letter, Paul is never just Paul. Paul is an apostle, an apostle, an apostle. Apostle meant sent on mission. That's what that word meant. And in one sense, Paul is a unique apostle. He has a unique, he is a unique sent one. With a unique, unrepeatable authority. But what many of us don't comprehend or or register is that anyone who accepts Jesus with empty hands of faith is also a sent one. We too have a calling. We too are sent out by Jesus to take part in His building project. 
And so Paul is saying, yes, I am a called one. But then he says to Titus and he says to Timothy, pretty much the same thing. So then in 1 Timothy, we see these words. Don't neglect your gift, Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to your care, Timothy. Turn away from godless chatter. In other words, you have been sent. You have a calling. And godless chatter is distracting you and others from this amazing mission. And in 2 Timothy, he says something similar. Fan into flame the gift of God. Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that was given to you in the laying on of hands. And then in Titus, Paul says something similar to Titus, my true son in our common faith. In other words, you and I are on the same mission. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. In other words, you too have a mission. Paul can finish well because he knows he is not the hero of his story. This story is so much bigger than even his life. So let me ask you this. Do you know that you have a significant and unrepeatable role to play in God's rescue mission. We are not Paul, we are not Timothy, we are not Titus, but we are called to the same exact mission. We are all sinners like that. I'm uh, following the Tour de France right now. Anyone else following the Tour de France right now? Okay. I'm late to the party, just so you know. Uh, those who are in the know know that there is way more than meets the eye to this event and all events like it. I always assumed that this tour was just a gigantic race of 176 individuals kind of duking it out to cross the finish line first. Kind of like this um, cross-country meet on bikes. But the truth is, it's a team sport. And in each team, there's one rider who has the best chance of finishing first. But they cannot do it without the support of other riders on their team. Riders who will help fuel them, even squeeze water bottles over their head to help cool them, block the wind for them, and defend against others for them. And so when one rider wins, the whole team wins. And everybody knows it. In other words, each rider has a very unique calling, but a very not unique mission. A shared mission. The same all-out goal, but it looks very different to each person. And if you want to finish well in the future, I want you to ask yourself this morning, ask yourself today, and I want you to even like maybe contemplate this question through the week. Am I the hero of my story? Or have I been sent to play a role in a story that is bigger than me? Am I the hero of my story? Or have I been sent to play a role in a story that is bigger than me? I think many of us live life as a person saved by Jesus. But how many of us live life as a person sent by Jesus. There's a huge difference. 
we have what author Pete Scazzaro calls a sealed order, each of us. A sealed order. And to die well, we have to finish well, as Paul puts it. But to finish well, how do you finish something unless you have a calling? You have a call from Jesus Christ. You have something to finish. There is a project that you have been called to take part in. Have you answered that call this morning? Is this a season, maybe in the slower season of summer, where you can ask the question to the Lord, Lord, what is my call? I don't want you to have anxiety or even despair if you don't know what that calling looks like or what it looks like from a day-to-day basis. But we can start by asking the question and asking it with our friends and asking it with our church family. What is our calling? Are you living life as a safe Christian or a sent Christian? They're both true. To finish well, we need a bigger story. I think we also need a bigger family. Finishing well in the future means, in a way, paradoxically, investing today in relationships. Now, we see this in the final letters of Paul again. Paul is a super gifted man, as we're finding out, who could have gone Lone Ranger in life, right? And Lone Ranger in ministry with his giftings. But instead, his letters, and especially these final letters, are a testimony to a man who had healthy partnerships. And many of them. Many, many, many of them. And we see them all over the place in all of his letters, but especially in his pastoral letters. So his relationship to Timothy is marked by familial intimacy. Timothy, my true son in the faith. Timothy, my son. It's marked by emotional longing. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. His relationship to Timothy is marked by vulnerability. He says this, You know all about my teaching. You know all about my way of life. You know all about my purpose. You know all about my faith. You know all about my patience. You know all about my love, my endurance. You know all about my persecutions, my sufferings. You know what's happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You know the persecutions that I endured. He was vulnerable before others. And Timothy knows Paul. Timothy knows his struggles. His relationship to Timothy is also marked by healthy interdependence. And not just Timothy, but so many others. We see with Titus, he calls him my true son in our common faith. Do your best, come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. So please come visit me. And then may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he's often refreshed me. So so Paul had people who refreshed him, people like Onesimus who didn't shun him or shame him, who was not ashamed of the shames, who actually searched for him. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Paul cultivated a, a deep and a rich, diverse network of support. Greek Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple that he met in Corinth, and the household of Onesiphorus and Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, sick in Miletus, to do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so does Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. I mean, this is a man who is entering the last moments of his life, and he has rich, 
deep relationships. What I would call healthy interdependence. When I was a high school senior, I stopped making new friends. Why? Senioritis. Anybody? Senioritis happens. What do you do? You shut down your friendships. Why? Because you're just like, what's the point? I'm moving on. And then when I was a college senior, I felt the same way. And I had mentors in my life who were like, don't do it. Don't succumb. Build into those who are younger than you. Have that Bible study. Even though you're moving on in just a month. Invest in those lives. Even though you've got just a couple weeks. Dig deep into relationships. It's tempting to shut down relationships when we see our end. But Paul turns us upside down. He seems to invest more as he sees his end. This is challenging to me, to be honest, as I get older. Uh, The closer I get to my end, the more independent and isolated I want to become. Uh, But Paul invests in relationships all the way to him. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. To finish well, we need to understand that we are part of a bigger family. We also need to see a bigger horizon. Paul can finish well because he knows his end is in a way just the beginning. His horizon has been expanded by Jesus. And in two ways. First, radical grace. His, Paul's horizon has been expanded by radical grace. These letters, these last letters are drenched in grace. At the end of Paul's life, he can finish well because the God that he's about to face is a God of radical grace. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, he says in 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says... Some of my favorite words. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, Jesus, because He cannot disown Himself. If your faith is in Jesus, I want this to be crystal clear in your mind and more importantly in your heart. If your faith is in Jesus, if your empty hands are laying hold of Jesus, if you know your uh, need and your need is being met by Jesus, then, then you are, Scripture says, united to Jesus. And you are so united to Jesus that He remains faithful because to do otherwise would be to disown Himself. That's how dearly He relates to His people. Paul is just like reminding himself of this at the end. He says to Titus, He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His Mercy. I think there are two ways to approach death. We stand on what we have done, or we relax into what Jesus has done for us. It's either our faithfulness or His faithfulness. Our holy life or His holy life on our behalf. One approach provides rest, and another approach generates the deepest kind of anxiety. Paul's horizon was enlarged because he experienced this grace. Have you? Have you experienced this grace? But that's not all 
Paul's horizon was enlarged by Jesus' promised renewal of all things. Paul has hope. We wait for the blessed hope. What is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we like to say, hope, hope is more than just wishful thinking. In the scriptures, hope is an assurance. Hope is an assurance that as surely as Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, so he will come and raise to life all that is broken and decaying by sin. And that is hope. We are anchored to the resurrected Jesus. We have assurance. And that enlarges our horizon so that Paul can say in 2 Timothy this, the Lord will rescue me. Okay, so he is in prison facing his execution. And, and, and this is what Paul says, the Lord will rescue me. Now we might think right now, okay, here's Paul with a wish, with a wish. Oh, I hope that somebody comes, or I hope somebody defends me in this court. I hope that the emperor has clemency on me. I hope that I have a few more uh, years to live. I, I just hope that somebody will rescue me. The Lord will do that. And he'll do that with every evil attack. But then here's what he does. The Apostle Paul shows how big his horizon is with these following words. The Lord will rescue me how? By bringing me safely to his heavenly kingdom. As Pastor Paul Scott Sells puts it, the hope that we have in Jesus means that the worst case scenario in our life is no longer the worst case scenario. We can be facing death like Paul in prison, and we can say, I am confident that the Lord will rescue me into his heavenly kingdom, and we can find rest in that fundamental hope. Paul's horizon has been expanded by the resurrected Jesus, and he can therefore finish well. Dylan Thomas was a Welsh poet who famously wrote these lines. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This is a summons from Dylan Thomas to rage against our end. To rage against it. Which is in one sense very understandable and way better than ignoring it. But is there more to dying than just raging against it? Could we approach our end with more than just rebellion? The words of another poet, John Donne, I think offers an interesting alternative. He writes, death, be not proud. This is a taunt. John Donne says, death, be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, in other words, translation, those you think you overthrow, don't die. Those that death you think you're mighty and dreadful over, no, you're wrong. Poor death. Nor yet can that kill me. Aeons. One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more death. Thou shalt die. Death, you're going to die. Says everyone who is united to the resurrected Jesus. This is better than rage. It's a realistic hope. It's a settled confidence that death 
is not the mighty, dreadful tyrant that we think it is. Though it does hurt really bad. And so our rage against death melts into maybe what we call a realistic hope. We grieve. And with Dylan Thomas, we even rage. But we go further than Dylan Thomas. We also settle down. We settle down. We don't have to avoid the end. We don't have to rage against it. We can finish well because in Jesus we have a bigger story. In Jesus we have a bigger family. And in Jesus, friends, we have a bigger horizon. So Lord, we rest ourselves. We entrust ourselves to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would, just from your word this morning and from Paul's testimony this morning in these letters, take one thing this week that would enable us to reframe our end. Lord, enable us to count our days for wisdom and for love's sake, so that we would love others well, and so that we would love you. We are so glad that we have a bigger story. We are so glad that we are part of a way bigger project, and a way bigger family, and that we have a way bigger horizon than we even realize today. Set our eyes on that. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.